Well, it's the end of the road for Stanford football. It's early National Signing Week, and it's history for Tara Vanderveer. Best of all, it's another episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Great to have you on board. Thursday, December 17th, 2020. Thank you so much for carving part of your day, carving out part of your day to be here with us. Hope you're having a great week. Part of the holiday season coming up in just a few days. And I hope you are doing whatever you can to stay healthy, stay safe, stay happy, and stay sane. A lot of ground to cover on the TreeCast this week. Not just one, but two guests on the show. We're going to chat with one of my favorite people, both on and off the mic, Ted Robinson of the Pac-12 Network. Looking forward to getting his thoughts on Stanford-UCLA, which comes up on Saturday afternoon. And everything we need to know about Pac-12 football this season as we have entered what I've called the mystery week. We didn't know what it was going to look like until just a couple of days ago. So really looking forward to catching up with one of my all-time favorite people, the man, Ted Robinson. And also, R.J. Abadia of TheBootleg.com. Early National Signing Day on Wednesday, and the Cardinal inking the bulk of its class of 21. Who do we need to know? What do we need to know? Few better people to chat about that with than R.J. Abadia of The Bootleg, who uh, covers Stanford Athletics like no one else does. The Bootleg, that, that website sounds familiar. Oh yeah, I wrote for them. <laughs> Clary's Corner for them for years. And in just a couple of minutes, we'll uh, get you into three things you need to know around the Stanford Athletics. And obviously, we'll also give you our own personal breakdown of Stanford versus UCLA on the football field. I'm Troy Clarity. Certainly great to have you with us. Wrapping up my 28th Stanford football season of following the Cardinal. Can't believe it is it has gone that way, but 28 seasons overall of following Stanford sports and uh, hopeful of firing up uh, my seventh year of uh, Pac-12 Network play-by-play. Hopefully the uh, fall sports that were not able to play this fall uh, get fired up as they are scheduled to, at least as of this point anyway, coming up starting in early February. A lot of things to do, but the first thing to do right now is to tell you about our friends at betonline.ag. And yes, NFL season, college football season are just about to wrap up and you might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino it never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and sign up to take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Plenty of football coming your way, but we, of course, begin our three things that you need to know around Stanford Athletics with a major milestone. Let's fire it up. Three things, starting with number one. <laughs> Hashtag Tara at the top. On Tuesday night in Stockton, Stanford women's basketball beat Pacific 104-61. That marked the 1,099th win in Tara Vanderbeer's head coaching career, and that made her the all-time winningest head coach in Division I women's basketball history. This is special because of... I think the magnitude of that many wins, like you never go into coaching. I never thought, well, I'm going to try to win a thousand games or anything like that. Um, but, um, you know, this is special. I mean, having, you know, currently the number one team, um, you know, being undefeated, playing in the pandemic, I will never forget this for sure. That's Tara Vanderveer's reaction. And it would have been nice to have been able to pull it off at Maples Pavilion in front of a packed crowd. Boy, what, a, what an atmosphere that would have been. Instead, it happened in an empty gym in Stockton, but on national TV, thanks to ESPN2, in taking the top spot, Vanderveer passed another coaching giant, the late Tennessee coach, Pat Summit. Vanderveer was asked what she thought Summit would say if, if she had been there to see it all for herself. Yeah, she would tell me, Tara, your team needs to rebound better. But um, I think all in all, um, you know, she, was, she had great passion for the game, and I think she sees that with me. And... Uh, she loves unselfish basketball, which um, I think she would see with our team. But, um, you know, more than anything, um, 
you know, she, she helped me get better as a coach because you had to really work hard to prepare. And we lost more games than we beat than we won against Tennessee. And un unfortunately, we're not able to play them this year. But um, I would hope that she would, uh, you know, she was a great mentor and a great friend. And I think she would be proud of us. You can always tell when you're talking to a coach, can't you? <laughs> I love the I love the crack about needing to rebound better. Now, a bunch of well-deserved accolades for Tara. The ESPN2 broadcast aired a congratulatory video with well wishes from legends in and beyond the Stanford community. Uh, Billie Jean King, uh, John Elway, whose daughter Jessie played for Tara, Condoleezza Rice, Steve Kerr, Neka Oguike, and so many others. Uh, David Shaw was asked about Tara uh, during his Tuesday morning press conference. And you should have seen the smile that came on David Shaw's face just as he was being asked the question about Tara. And, and he started his response by saying, look, I could talk for an hour straight about what she's meant to Stanford, what she's meant to coaches everywhere, and about what her impact has been, has been on me as well. So David Shaw with fantastic things to say, along with a host of others about Tara Vanderveer. In fact, you might remember Tara herself joined the TreeCast back in September. I highly encourage you to check out that episode. Well worth your time and well worth your while. And, and I said it on Twitter, and I'll say it again here. Stanford's chock full of fantastic and legendary coaches across all sports. But you know what? When, when you seat them all at the table, there, there's no doubt who sits at the head of the table. Congratulations to Tara Vanderveer for her impact on and off the floor. Let's get to number two. How about a quick men's hoops check? They're back on the West Coast after their extended stay in North Carolina. Uh, after the uh, Maui Invitational wrapped up, they stuck around for a few days, were able to notch a win against North Carolina A&T. They were supposed to open Pac-12 play this past Sunday at USC down in L.A., but COVID issues in the Trojan program put the kibosh on that one. So Stanford stayed in Southern California, added a game at Cal State Northridge for Tuesday afternoon, and the Cardinal beat CSUN 82-71. Oscar Da Silva had 32 points and 9 rebounds against the Matadors. Stanford's now 3-2, so they'll host Arizona on Saturday in Santa Cruz. After that, the Card are slated to head to Oregon over New Year's. We'll see what happens with that, but first things first, Cardinal looking to uh, take care of business against the Wildcats in a home game in Santa Cruz. They're obviously not playing at Maple Pavilion for clear reasons due to the health directive, and we'll see how much longer that lasts. Let's wrap it up with number three. Stanford football, meanwhile, has relocated to Santa Barbara, where the Card are getting ready for their matchup at UCLA. That's a Saturday 4 p.m. kickoff from the Rose Bowl in a game that will serve as Stanford's season finale for 2020. Cardinal making the announcement on Sunday afternoon that it will not accept the bowl bid this season. David Shaw tells what went into that decision. As much as many of us in our hearts would love to play in a bowl game, I don't see how we could do it. To play in the January 1 bowl game, December 31st bowl game, where do we practice for two weeks? We can't go back to, to Stanford to practice. Um, we'd have to practice in another location and then not have a real bowl experience, but then transfer our program again you know, to potentially the fourth or fifth location for a bowl game 48 hours before the game that, especially in all the travel with, against another opponent, that may not even happen. I think we've made the best of these two and a half weeks, about to be three weeks, um, but then to practice for two more weeks at a different location, um, uh, it, it's with all the testing and all the different things, um, have our guys miss Christmas with their families. Um, that's, a, that's a big ask um, from us, uh, for us. Uh, to, to on these student athletes so um, the guys are great with it they understand it um, they're excited about this week uh, to go play and they're excited about being able to to see their families over the holidays and quite honestly it's it's hard to argue with any of that those are three things we'll catch up with ted robinson and talk a little stanford ucla and pac-12 football with him coming up a bit later on in the show but right now i mean I've made this admission uh, here on this show and elsewhere as well. Recruiting isn't exactly my department, 
But that being said, it's still a crucial and a vital day in the college sports calendar because this is where all the players come from. And it's it's an exciting day. It's still a very exciting day for, for everyone involved as, as teams start to come together and as young men and women figure out what they're going to be doing for the foreseeable future of their lives. So it's a very exciting day. Wednesday, of course, was early National Signing Day and Stanford signing 20 young men to its class of 21 for football and here to help us break all of that down is a guy who's recruiting is squarely in his wheelhouse he's been writing for 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 stanford football or about stanford football and stanford sports for quite some time and i always enjoy hanging out with them from the bootleg.com my man rj abadia rj appreciate the time thanks a bunch and let's get right into it uh you were in on david shaw's wednesday afternoon press conference going over uh, the cardinal class of 21 and i'm sure that i'm sure that he said he's pleased with the class because that's what coaches always say um, what and who stands out to you about the Cardinal class of 21? Well, um, I don't think it's uh, revealing too much to say that this is probably among the, if not the least heralded group. I don't think that's a surprise. I think people, even those like you who casually follow recruiting by self-confession, um, I don't think you were expecting to hear a big bonanza full of four and five star names and whatever. Um, I will say, I'd say there's a couple things. I think number one, it was a small numbered class. Um, and I'll say a couple qualifiers to that. First of all, um, it was always intended to be a small numbered class before the world ended. It was always going to be somewhere in that 18 to 21 range. And, you know, Stanford has, um, they love their, they love their preferred walk-ons. Um, and that's, that's fine. I think there's a lot of good to that. But the reality of the class is, as I'm looking at it, and I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 13, 14 scholarship guys as of now. And the number's not fixed, um, but it was always going to be a small class. And so that is a factor, certainly, when you factor in ratings and things like that. The other part I would say is that Given the uncertainty this year in terms of what juniors, seniors, and fifth years are going to do, I don't know that it's not a good thing to have a smaller class of 21 guys. I think, you know, it's a situation Stanford never runs into, but I think, you know, in a year where you might reach and go for 21, 22, 23 guys, and then find yourself with some interesting situations on the back end of it, even as the NCAA expands the scholarship count, that's not going to be the case forever. So, you know, if you want to use that now, now you've made a choice about the 22 class. So numbers wise, it's not huge. And that's by design. And I will say that's not necessarily the worst thing. Um, as far as class headliners, Aaron Armitage, mm -hmm. without question, is the headliner. And that was a battle to get him from USC. Um, that was a real, a real, really contested recruitment. Um, and it was a really good thing for them to be able to get him, not just the quantity at defensive line, but to get quality at a position of tremendous need. I think if you're looking at this class and you want bright spots, the needs were very obvious, defensive line and secondary, specifically safety. And in terms of quantity, they absolutely address that. Anything else potentially brewing by February? Yeah, I think um, Coach alluded to it. I think there's going to be at least one more offensive line signing, probably just the one more. I also expect um, an inside linebacker signing to happen, um, just some names for you casuals out there to bookmark for February, I guess. Um, Austin Uke, UKE, he's a Texas offensive lineman. He's pretty well regarded and he's getting his recruitments, picking up a lot of steam and Stanford's in that mix. So we'll see uh, where that goes, but they're definitely in on him and he's a quality guy. And if you take him and Jack Lehrer, that's a good little supplement. Um, in a year when you weren't going to take a full offensive line class. And then the other name defensively would be S.A. Dubre, um, inside linebacker out of Georgia, where Stanford 
does a lot of business, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, and we could hear from him as early as Friday. So liking where Stanford is there. So yeah, the, the, the T's are not all crossed on this class as of yet. Yeah, an inside linebacker, certainly a major position of need based yeah. on how things have gone for Stanford defensively, specifically um, over the last couple of years or so. Uh, as we wrap this up, kind of like a big picture kind of thing. And look, 2020 wasn't a normal year for anything. And I kind of I kind of think you've hinted at this here a little bit during this chat, but how much do you sense that 2020 and the events that surrounded everything that went into this year, how much do you think that that potentially, or how much do you sense that that potentially changed what this class eventually is going to look like? Well, I think there's no question that there was an impact. Um, the exact number off the top of my head is escaping me right now, but I want to say it's pending a couple results. I think there are eight admits, as many as eight admits who have chosen to go somewhere else. And that's unheard of um, in the David Shaw era, in most eras, to be honest with you. I think when you get a kid to go that far down the road with you and your Stanford, the party's supposed to be over at that point. Um, and so for that to have happened is noteworthy. Um, and I think in fairness, you cannot put that all on the craziness of 2020, but you also can't ignore the craziness of 2020 and the inability to get people on campus to visit. I think I will say if Stanford is to have hope for the 22 class in terms of getting it back up to a highly ranked class, because that's going to be a full class and it's going to need to be a full class. Um, big picture, the 2021 team is going to be bookended by the least, the lowest ranked recruiting classes in David Shaw's career. So you have some really curious eyes, I think, watching what that 2021 team does. And on the flip side of it, I'll just say, I think it is valuable, incredibly valuable that Stanford has been able to put together some decent film in 2020. It's not a 12 game season. It doesn't include these huge wins that you'd like to see in terms of the national picture or whatever. Um, but there's good film now from this team where they can actually go to 2022 recruits and say, when we are healthy, look at what we can do. You know, we can do things, especially on the offensive side of the ball and defensive side. I think if you're reaching out to elite names, it's come on in. If, if you're, if you're an elite guy, we've got snaps for you. So I think on balance, 2020 is not a year anybody wants to repeat, but what they were able to get out of it by getting on the field and putting some of their best feet forward these last three games is relevant, especially going into another cycle where the earliest they can physically evaluate or have players on campus is going to be April. And that's not set in stone. Yeah, I'm just freaked out that now Stanford's starting to sign kids whose fathers played for Stanford while I was in college. So <laughs> that's kind of I'm kind of starting to freak out a little bit about that. But yeah. card class of 2021 taking shape and perhaps a few more names coming up in the weeks ahead. At the forefront of the coverage of it all, of course, my man RJ Abadia from thebootleg.com. RJ, thanks much. Always appreciate the time. We'll talk again soon. Take it easy, buddy. Good stuff with uh, RJ Beatty. Appreciate his time. Read his stuff at thebootleg.com. Yeah, uh, Zach, Buc uh, Zach Bucky, uh, defensive end out of Bakersfield. Uh, his dad played tackle for Stanford, offensive tackle for Stanford back in the 90s while I was there. So if you've got guys who were playing at Stanford while I was there and now, now their kids are signing up to, to play for Stanford, I'm old. <laughs> I'm old, man. But uh, yeah, and, and really intriguing stuff, I thought, from RJ as well, because, you know, David Shaw has talked about this on, on several occasions about how the pandemic um, has really affected things from a recruiting standpoint. And, and look, we know what it's done just from a logistical standpoint for Stanford football um, this fall with them having to disrupt their training camp and have to having to practice up at uh, up at Woodside High School and obviously what that program has been going on for the past three weeks or so. But this even stretches out to the recruiting aspect of things with travel being restricted as restricted as it has been. That prevents a lot of kids from coming out and seeing the campus. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't have to tell you 
by by chance, pretty much, you know, if you're listening to this, you're a Stanford fan. You've been on the Stanford campus, and you know what a what a special place that is, and what an what an eye-opening visit that was. Probably whenever you stepped on campus for the first time, you know what a special moment that is. And many times, the campus does a lot of the selling. Well, they weren't able to do that this year. So really intriguing to get RJ's thoughts on how that affected what we saw with this class uh, from uh, Stanford, from a recruiting standpoint. Now, I'm really happy to see that maybe one or two inside linebackers are in the mix because that is a definite, definite need for Stanford down the road. My kingdom for an inside linebacker. But great stuff with R.J. Abadia. Glad that he could spend some time with us. Well, we've hit the mystery week, as I called it, of the Pac-12 season. As regular season technically done, we didn't know what this week was going to look like. And we didn't get those answers until Sunday morning. And in some respects, we, we still don't quite know what it's going to look like this weekend. But mystery week is here. What mysteries are still there in the Pac-12? And what do we really know up and down the conference at this point about the Pac-12 and about Stanford football as well? Got just the guy to ask those very questions to. You've seen him all the time on the Pac-12 network calling football, basketball, and baseball. Calls just about every sport there is known to mankind on NBC. And, of course, I'm sure you also know him from his two terms as the radio play-by-play -play voice of Stanford football. Always an honor and a pleasure and a privilege to welcome in the one and only Ted Robinson joining us here on the TreeCast. Ted, thanks a bunch. Always appreciate the time. How are you doing today? Well, Troy, I don't know if I can possibly live up to that because given what we've seen in 2020 and then apply that to Pac-12 football, and it has been an absolute blank show every week we know that and yeah. i hope that the the eight teams that are as we speak scheduled to play can make it um it's it's puzzling and perplexing but at the end of the day you just have to step back and say man it as chip kelly says it's 2020 bro yeah yeah and, and just appreciate what you can get yeah. when you can get it at this point in time and, and kind of along those lines you know obviously this season has been difficult in some cases impossible to predict that being said, how did what we've actually seen so far this season match up with some things that you thought that, that you thought we might see uh, in 2020 this fall? Oh, wow. Um, I, you know, I think I, I think I started from the beginning of the college season, which happened in other parts of the country, and it's carried through through much of the Pac-12 season. Defense has been awfully hard. I think offenses are so far ahead. You know, it's it's obviously the rule changes that have morphed into the game over the last several years and then you know spring short fall just go play opt-outs all those things offenses are way ahead and I mean my gosh to see USC and UCLA play a shootout the other night uh you know it's it's it to me it's just that's been an overriding theme um I would say without question the biggest surprise is Colorado um I would say to me the disappointment was Oregon, even though they are in the championship game, you know, honestly, if you say to me, if it were in a, an eye test, Stanford would be in the championship game, but Oregon beat them head to head, even though that game has an asterisk because Davis Mills was out with a false test. Um, but, but I think Oregon to me, just the way they played, they weren't Oregon and they certainly weren't the Oregon team, the Mario Cristobal or the Oregon style of football that Mario Cristobal has has brought there. That didn't happen this year. And without question to me, the best story at the end of the year is Stanford. I mean, what, what David Shaw has done, because I was one of those people after the 0-2 start coming off of last season, I'm sitting there shaking my head going, man, what is up? To be homeless and play the way they, the way they have is unbelievable. And, and that's what's the great, Troy, about this weekend. Stanford at UCLA two programs that are going the right way at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And that's excellent. I mean, that to me is by far the most, I mean, obviously the USC championship game has the bit most riding on it. It's a lot of money that the schools will, will use, will need. But to me, the Stanford UCLA game is the most intriguing game of the weekend. Yeah, I, I think I think so as well in a lot of different ways. I'll get your further thoughts on that uh, here in, in a few minutes or so. Uh, you mentioned Oregon, you mentioned USC, and as, as, as amazing as it seems, 
you know, with all that's happened, the, the two teams that the media picked before the season to be in the Pac-12 championship game, lo and behold, are going to play in it. Oregon, of course, getting in there because Washington unable to go this week. Uh, your thoughts initially on, on this matchup. What's your initial read on what Oregon and USC might be able to put on the field on Friday? Well, USC has had how many lives this year, Troy? <laughs> you know, they go in undefeated. They could have four losses. You watch the games, but they've been extraordinary. Fourth quarter, we understand. To me, the advantage they have is very, very clear over everybody else. They have wide receivers that are NFL caliber. And I'm saying plural receivers that are NFL players. And I mean, just last Saturday against UCLA, last minute, Bruin scored to take the lead. Slovis goes back, throws one down the field, just says, my guy is going to beat their guy and catch the ball. And that's exactly what happened. And they won the game as a result. And USC has done that multiple times the last couple of years. So can Oregon stop that? Can Oregon limit the damage that the USC wide receivers uh, will, will and have done to just about everybody? Uh, I, mean, I, I think if Oregon can get some pressure, obviously if Thibodeau can be Thibodeau, if, if Oregon can get pressure on Slovis, that would help. Um, I, I, just, I just think to me that is the overriding um, factor in the game is the USC wide receivers. And then assuming they're healthy, if Oregon, and remember Oregon has, has a, a week here, a week extra rest to get ready. Mm -hmm. If Verdell and Dye are healthy, I mean, the running backs, that, that, that's two pretty good you know, playmakers that they should be able to have. So if they can run the ball with some success, that would be a huge part. Um, but obviously there's, well, I think it's very clear that this isn't, the way it should be, it's a factor of 2020. Um, Washington, to me, for most of the, what we saw play was the best team, I thought, in the conference. Now, Stanford took them out. Credit the Stanford for that. And the other overriding question to me, Troy, that I, I hope Washington's asking, and certainly when, the, when you study COVID and its effects needs to be asked, Washington football never left home. Right. 11 teams traveled and some teams got hurt by COVID. And I know some teams in the conference feel the travel was what cost them is where they, where they, where certain people, uh, uh, you know, were, became infected with COVID. Washington never traveled and they came down with it. Uh, you know, in Seattle where the university is, has had a ton of pretty strict protocols in place by the public elected officials and health officials. So there's no blame involved other than you just need to ask why, how did this happen? <laughs> when we're the one team that didn't go anywhere. And unfortunately, you know, it hurts. I mean, it hurt. It, anyway, it, ultimately, Troy, nothing is fair this year. Nothing is fair. And so had Washington been able to play this week, it wouldn't have been fair from the standpoint they didn't have to play on the road. Yeah. And it wasn't road football as much as traveling. They didn't have to deal with all of the hurdles that COVID presented to any team that had anybody that has to travel. Uh, but asking for fairness, Stanford would be at the front of the line to say, fair <laughs> the heck's fair about us we got we got kicked out of our home <laughs> and the brilliance of what david shaw has done is that stanford survived it and not just that they succeeded yeah. Well, speaking of fair, Colorado with Oregon being pulled up to the uh, Pac-12 championship game. Colorado, as you mentioned, a surprise team, one of the better stories in this conference. All of a sudden, without a dancing partner and one of the better teams in the conference, isn't going to be able to play this weekend. That's certainly not fair. And Arizona State, who I thought really had a real chance of winning the Pac-12, and, and I was looking pretty good there with five minutes to go against USC, and then the final, the next few months, or the next few weeks, rather, happened for Arizona State there. I'm curious to get your thoughts on Arizona State and Colorado, and what could have been for Colorado this week, and maybe what could have been for Arizona for this whole entire season? Yeah. Um, Arizona State, Ar I should say. Arizona State, yeah. I mean, that first game was, again, it's like you said, Arizona State was the better team. And USC won the game. That happens sometimes. Um, you know, and then unfortunately, Arizona State can't play three weeks in a row after that. They became so infected, you know, all the way up to Herm, who's, you know, in his late 60s, and Marvin Lewis, who's in his late 60s. And suddenly you've got people in that, you know, high risk group that become infected. So you, you know, they shut down for three weeks. Um, and it's a shame because they're a good team. They, they were a good team. We only saw a glimpse of it. You know, hopefully they get to play their game at Corvallis this weekend. That would give them at least four games. Uh, Jaden Daniels is just, I think he's going to be a very, very good Pac-12 quarterback going ahead. Their defensive line had a chance to be 
disruptive. We saw in the USC game, Jermaine Lolay, what a presence that he was up front. But at the end of the day, it's all, you know, it just doesn't matter anymore. Um, Colorado, I, it was the only game I called this year was right. the makeup game that Colorado had against San Diego State. We called it from San Francisco, so I was not in Boulder, but had a chance to at least watch carefully and talk to Carl Durrell a little bit the day before the game. Uh, that's just a great story. You know, everything that I re- re- referenced that Stanford had to go through in terms of the homelessness, Colorado went through it for months because, quite frankly, the, the former coach there uh, was just had a complete lack of integrity in how he dealt with leaving that job. Carl Durrell comes in late. He gets hired just a couple of weeks before COVID. So he barely knows his team. He's barely on the job. Suddenly everything's shut down. And now you you have to go find a quarterback. Thankfully, he talks Sam Neuer into coming back. Sam Neuer, to me, looks like like a, a more, you know, a 10-year-later version of Tebow. I mean, just a big, strong dude that can run. He looks like he throws a little bit better than Tebow, but, I mean, that kind of a quarterback. And then your top running back winds up not playing a down, and they find this guy, Broussard, who hadn't played. Broussard winds up being one of the best backs in the, in the conference this year. Nate Landman, Bay Area kid, mm-hmm. tremendous college linebacker. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sad. And, and again, they are – Stanford's uh, stance on unfairness is, is re- really relative to uh, the, the fact that their own county kicked them out. Um, yes, they, and they also had the false positive issue for the first game. Colorado, think about this. They lost the chance to win the division because USC had a problem, not Colorado. And now they lose the second place game this coming Saturday because Washington can't play and Oregon gets by. So Colorado's had no problem. And yet they've been hurt twice. Fair? Of course it's not fair. Um, I think it's also important, Troy, for everybody who cares to understand that the, the, the decisions made about the championship weekend were made by the 12 schools. It's not Larry Scott. I mean, that's going to be the easy, lazy uh, punching bag that everybody in, you know, with, with a voice today uses. Had the 12 schools wanted to change the rules as the Big Ten did for Ohio State, as the ACC did in giving Clemson and Notre Dame both having a week off to go to the championship game, the schools could have done that. They opted to follow the policy they put in place at the beginning of the season. So, yeah, is it fair? No, not fair to Colorado at all. But, you know, again, this is not a year where you search for fairness. <laughs> Unfortunately, it has not proven to be that way, at least on the field uh, to this point. Let's talk about Stanford. I think you've hinted at this here a little bit earlier, a few minutes ago. Uh, Stanford's trajectory uh, after week two, you weren't quite sure which way things were going to go. Certainly things weren't looking very good for the Cardinal after starting off 0-2. But now after three close wins on the road, things starting to look a bit better. What's your take and what's your, what are your thoughts on what Stanford's trajectory has become as the season has gone along? Uh, much, much better. Wow. I, like I said, after week two, uh, Troy, I was down because – in the way Colorado in, in the second game, the way Colorado just kind of ran through them in the first half of the game at Stanford Stadium was somewhat alarming. And there may have been a backstory to cause that that I'm not aware of. Uh, I'll tell you the thing that I, the thing that stands out to me now, and this is of course with with the benefit of of hindsight, was the first game at Oregon, even though Davis Mills doesn't play, especially the first half, and I was somewhere, why I forget where I was working and watching it. Stanford's offensive line pushed Oregon's defensive line around, sure especially the first half of the first game. And I'm going, wait a minute. This was not a strength last year for Stanford. Walker Little opts out. You're going, where is this coming from? And I'm going, well, maybe, you know, they've figured something out here. Now, again, they don't win the game. And they wound up playing someone at, at corner in that game that was a little overmatched. And Oregon picked on them. Uh, you know, again, Paulson Adebo opts out. So you lose your best defensive player chooses not to play. And then a a premier offensive lineman also chooses not to play. So you already know you're in a bad place. Now your quarterback can't play and they still play competitively. Now in hindsight, that's, that should have been the tell, but I think the way the Colorado game went kind of just soured a lot. Certainly it turned me, they're going, man, this is not what Stanford football has been and good for them. Good on them. They flipped it. And to do what, like I said, just to do what they've just done the last, 10 days, Seattle and Corvallis, 
that's just exceptional. And the way they won the game in Corvallis last Saturday, that looked like Stanford football. I mean, the way they just said, okay, we're going we're gonna to get the ball in this last drive. And we're just going to come right at you and we're going to move the ball on you. And we've got a good kicker who, by the way, there's the other mm-hmm. you know, oddity in game one. He misses four field goals. That guy's too good a kicker to have a game like that. So, you know, he's, that's why to me, you can't do it because it's, it just, it's not right. But in theory, if I were saying, if I were the CFP where everything is a subjective measure and I said, who should be in the championship game if Washington can't play, it would have been Stanford. But you can't erase the first game and Oregon won the head to head. So they get in. But, but all those things that went wrong for Stanford in that game clearly didn't go wrong the rest of the, the, rest of the games they played. Yeah, they've been able to put it together just enough offense, just enough defense, and a little bit of special teams along the way to help them with uh, three consecutive wins. Hoping to close out the season on a four-game win streak. And as we wrap this up here, you know, always special whenever Stanford plays in that building in the Rose Bowl. Always special whenever Stanford ends the season in the Rose Bowl. Different circumstances, obviously, this year. But Stanford, UCLA, and the Bruins, to me, seemed at times, even though they didn't close it out, they seem to be a bit more fundamentally sound and a bit more real live physical, not that poser physical looking good coming off the bus. Then they actually get involved in a real life football game. Then they go away. No, they actually seem a bit more physical, especially defense de- uh, defensively than they have over the last 10, 15 years or so. Your initial read on some things to watch between Stanford and UCLA on Saturday afternoon. Well, I think you hit a try and I just say UCLA to me has been a real surprise this year, knowing uh, Chuck Kelly, Jerry Azanaro pretty well. Um, you know, they just have had no defense the last couple of years. They have a defense this year. They're playing. And Adigizua on the defensive line has been incredibly active. They're just, and I'm not suggesting they're a steel curtain-like defense. That's not my point. But at least it's better. It, it gives them, ch- and they've won games because their defense has been pretty stout. And that's a real pleasant surprise. Um, and then on top of that, Felton has been one of the best running backs in the conference. Uh, you know, Joshua Kelly moving on. Felton kind of steps out of that shadow and is the man. And even though he missed a couple of games, DTR is now experienced enough in Chip's offense when he's played. And you saw it Saturday night against USC. He's pretty good. So I hope that we have an un, you know, I hope we have a normal season in 21 that would give DTR a chance to play one more full year in Chip Kelly's offense, because that could be a lot of fun. So to me, it would be, all right, can Stanford's offensive line, as, as improved as they've been this year, can they neutralize or win the battle against the UCLA D-line? And that, again, to me, that's Stanford's mindset, right? And then have Davis Mills throw when you want to throw, not because you have to. Uh, and the other obvious thing was you don't want to play, you don't want to play from behind against a Chip Kelly team, and and obviously the the great thing is if you can make them play uphill, if you may if you can get out first and make UCLA have to play uphill, that becomes a much different game for the Chip Kelly offense. But it is without question. I mean, to see how Fahoko, who I you know I know how high the coaches were on him last year, to see him emerge a little bit these last few games has been fun. On the UCLA side, you see Dulcich, who's a wide receiver, and they kind of bulked him up a little bit, and they've turned him into a receiving tight end. He's not the not the old school, get your hand in the dirt, grinding tight end, Mike Ditka tight end, but he's more the modern day tight end, really an athlete. And he's a receiver who can hopefully block a little bit. Um, you know, Fleener was that way in, in Stanford's time, right? Fleener was a receiving tight end. Uh, Dulcich has been a nice ad. He, that's good position change. I think UCLA made this year. UCLA and Stanford, two teams appearing to be on the way up but only one can get the win to close out the 2020 season. Should be a lot of fun. I know Ted Robinson's going to have his eyes on it, as he always does around the entire Pac-12. And, and oh, by the way, after you're done listening to this episode of the TreeCast, check out Ted and Yogi's Pac-12 Adventure, which is an outstanding, outstanding product. You and Yogi do a fantastic job on that, by the way. Thank, thank you. That That's very nice, Troy. It's a labor of love. And Sadly, our network hasn't, the Pac-12 network hasn't been functioning at 100% this year for all the clear reasons. So we decided to keep doing it on our own just to give the, you know, another, like you're doing here with your pod, to give Pac-12 football as much of an outlet as we can. The nice part is Yogi 
found us a, a, a an intern, Britton Covey, the oh, okay. wide receiver for Utah, yeah. and our intern and producing <laughs> the podcast. And uh, thank goodness the last two weeks for Utah, he's been able to come out and just play and contribute, which has been so much fun to see. Yeah, but anyway, yes. Troy, it's been great to be with you again. Likewise. Thank you. You're the as nicest always. guy I've ever met from Oklahoma City, buddy. <laughs> There's a few of us out there. <laughs> I lived safe. there for a while, and I'm saying it. You're the nicest guy I've ever met. I appreciate that. Stay safe, stay sane, have an outstanding holiday season, and we'll talk again soon. Same to you, Troy. Big fan of that guy. Really appreciate Ted Robinson's time, and uh, we go back we go back a long, long time, and uh, really glad to uh, – uh, still be able to keep in touch with him and chat with him every little once in a while. And uh, yeah, Friday evening uh, will be intriguing Oregon versus USC. And man, USC's receivers, whew, Drake London's going to be a rich young man very, very soon. Boy, that guy's going to make some NFL team, I think, very, very happy. But uh, Colorado, I, and I want to I want to broach this this subject for, for Jeff to, just a brief second because Ted and I talked about this, how how the concept of fairness has really been skewed and that's part and parcel of trying to play college football in the middle of a global pandemic. But I don't think there's really any other way around it. Colorado got jobbed with Oregon being pulled up to uh, play in the PAC 12 championship game with Washington, not able to go, able to go due to its COVID issues. I believe Jimmy Lake said, what they have no offensive linemen. That could be a problem. But I really think Colorado just got got really screwed in in all of this because with Oregon being pulled up, that meant that Colorado didn't have an opponent. And when I was looking at this the other day, earlier this week, as as this this was starting to unfold, I kind of started you know moving some pieces of the puzzle around and saying, look, you know, here's what you have to do: cancel Arizona State, Oregon State. That game scheduled to be played in Corvallis this weekend. I think you cancel that game. Oregon State played all six games as scheduled. The only team to do so, the only team to play all six games as scheduled in the Pac-12. UCLA played six games, but they had to do some shuffling around and move Utah out after the Utes couldn't play due to their own COVID issues. And they had to pull Cal in on, on 48 hours notice. And Cal played like it. But Oregon State played all six of its games, and they went two and four. So there are no postseason scenarios on the, on the line there for the Beavers, and they also played an extra home game thanks to Stanford's situation. So cancel Arizona State, Oregon State, and give Oregon State the week off and thank them for playing this season. Meanwhile, Arizona State, they've only played three games so far this year. So you send Arizona State down to play Colorado in Los Angeles, where the Buffs were supposed to have played the Oregon Ducks. As I say this, the Colorado equipment truck currently sitting in St. George, Utah right now, by the way, because they don't know if they're going to get a game in Boulder or in Los Angeles right now. In either case, Colorado is sitting at home right now through no fault of its own. And I think that's really unfortunate and, and a really bad situation for the Buffs to be in, especially when they've been one of the better teams in the Pac-12 this year, only getting their, their first loss of the season to Utah last week. Congrats to the Utes. They played lights out in the second half. And I'm I'm really I'm really saddened by Nate Landman, the 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 Colorado Wildman at linebacker who went down with a non-contact injury and is is lost for the season, the rest of the season, no matter no matter how long the season lasts for the Colorado Buffaloes. But the Buffs with the second best record in the Pac-12, they're sitting at home right now through no fault of their own. I think my plan would certainly have given the Buffs a good matchup against Arizona State that, quite honestly, a lot more folks would have been interested in as opposed to what we have right now with Arizona State, Oregon State. I'd like to think the Pac-12 considered this, and maybe there were some logistical considerations that prevented them from pulling this off, but I think this would have been the way to go. And I think it's unfortunate that Colorado is not playing this week, this critical week, when it could have been a showcase for them and for the Pac-12 and for Arizona State, too. I mean, that's that would have been a bit more of an important game for them to play as opposed to going up to Corvallis this week. But, yeah, that's that's what I'm that's what I would have done. Cancel Arizona State, Oregon State, send Arizona State down to L.A. to play Colorado. That would have been the way to go in my estimation. But you know, what do I know? Um, let's bring it back to Stanford. And uh, for three weeks in a row, 
the Cardinals have been able to close out games, and it's been it's been a bit sweaty in in some respects, but Stanford's been able to come away with close games. How have they done it? David Shaw offers up some thoughts. We've got more guys out there with a little bit more experience. Um, and I keep thinking about this time next year with all those guys that are coming back, those guys that were freshmen last year, sophomores now, guys that are freshmen now, sophomores now, guys that are juniors now, seniors next year. All those things continue to show up that you do the right things over and over again. And at critical times, you don't get anxious, you don't get nervous. You just go out there and do what you prepare to do. So um, those are things that really showed up the last few weeks. Yeah, experience helps, and uh, good things in practice also help out as well. And, and it's resulted in tight wins over Cal, Washington, and Oregon State. All on the road, by the way. And they'll need to rely on that experience and on those good practice habits this week at UCLA because they're dealing with the Bruins squad that that looks a lot better in, in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, they're 3-3, three and three and they let one slip away to USC last week in that, in that 43-38 thriller. But as we discussed with, with Ted Robinson, UCLA seems a lot more fundamentally sound and a lot more legitimately tough these days. And they've been, they've been particularly impressive on the defensive side of the ball. New defensive coordinator bringing a bit more uh, of an attacking style, and it, it's paid off. It's shown. They're second in the Pac-12 with six interceptions, and they lead the Pac-12 with 21 sacks. Now, a lot of those numbers are a function of being able to play six games, but still pretty impressive, even if you break it down to uh, per-game ratios with interceptions and sacks per game. One name that might be pretty familiar to Stanford fans from the UCLA defense, Obi Ebo. Yeah, yeah, the same Obi Ebo who started six games for Stanford last year in the Cardinals secondary. Obi, a grad transfer to UCLA this past offseason, actually started the first five games at corner for the Bruins, missed the USC game last week, but he could be back this week to face his former mates. So defensively, the Bruins can do some things. And they can do things offensively as well. Tight end Greg Dull, such a fantastic weapon. Um, maybe the Bruins coaches will actually use him, unlike the Washington coaches who ignored Kate Otten and forgot that he was on their team until it was practically too late. But the two big weapons for UCLA offensively, two incredibly dynamic players. Quarterback Dorian Thompson-Robinson, also known as DTR. He can beat you with his arm. He can beat you with his legs. And usually, he does both. David Shaw knows what his defense is in for against DTR. This guy's a problem. Um, and uh, we're have, it's going to take a good team effort um, to understand how to try to contain him. Um, you know, the hard part is it's not like he's just a runner. He can beat you with his arm, too. So um, we have to pressure him, but pressure him smartly um, and hopefully keep him contained and minimize the damage he's going to do because he's going to make some plays. Right, right off the bat, you walk into the game knowing he's going to do some things that we're not going to be able to stop, um, but we can't let him take the game over. Yeah, dude's a problem. Dude's a problem. DTR threw four touchdowns against Colorado and USC apiece, and he also ran for 109 yards at Colorado. Made that game a lot closer than it probably should have been in week one up in Boulder uh, as uh, the Bruins were able to fight back from committing some just heinous and ghastly turnovers at the start and actually made it a pretty close game in the second half. Now, DTR still tries to make some throws every once in a while that make you say, huh? But he's still also capable of making a bunch of plays that make you say, whoa. The other guy who brings the lightning for the Bruins, running back Demetric Felton. Super quick, super slithery, lethal in open space. And very productive, 167 yards and two touchdowns at Oregon, 206 yards in the score against the feeble Wildcats the very next week. And he's durable too, it seems, because you know Oregon and Arizona in back-to-back -back weeks, I, gave, I just gave you his yardage numbers, he also combined for 66 carries in those back-to-back -back games. So, so he's got more durability than you might think for a guy who runs with his style. Also caught a couple touchdown passes against USC last week. Now, all those things being said, last year, Felton's numbers against Stanford in that game that I'm sure all Cardinal fans are trying to, trying to continue to forget, his numbers against the Cardinal were astonishing. But for the exact 
opposite reasons. Felton with 10 touches against Stanford last year, 14 yards, including seven carries for minus nine yards. And this was from the same guy who had had four touchdowns of 75 plus yards to that point in last season. But Felton did the big squad oosh darn near against Stanford last year. It was, it was by far the highlight for Stanford in that game last year against the UCLA Bruins in which UCLA came to Stanford Stadium, took advantage of the Cardinals' unhealthy quarterback situation and just pretty much did what they wanted against Stanford and ended an 11-game losing streak against the Cardinals. A night that I'd like to forget. And because I was kind of, I was battling a raging head cold that night and was hopped up on all sorts of cold medicine that evening, I'm still, I still have questions as to whether that night really happened because that whole thing is still pretty fuzzy to me. But no matter how you slice it, this year with Felton, with DTR, with Dulcich at tight end, with other things that, that, that UCLA can do offensively, and oh, by the way, with Chip Kelly pulling the strings, this Stanford defense is about to face its biggest test yet. Which brings us to keys. How did Stanford neutralize Felton last year? Well, Thomas Booker told me after the game, and uh, you might remember this uh, conversation on the TreeCast after that game was done, um, the key was staying in the gaps, Everyone stayed in their gaps, and the defensive line in particular, knocking people back. It also helped that they had total team discipline on defense against Felton. Now, they, they gave up some big runs against DTR, but against Felton, it worked. Oh, my God, Lance Anderson was mwah, magnifique against that guy. But staying in your gap and knocking people back, those were Thomas Booker's big keys to limiting Demetric Felton last year. And I'm sure that there are also big keys in trying to bottle up that guy this year as well. And same for limiting DTR's running prowess. It's going to take discipline, total discipline from everyone, all 11 guys. And look, Stanford has had mixed results against athletic quarterbacks this year. And most of them ran successfully by getting outside, by breaking contain, and by making plays in, in, in that respect. Chase Garber's account comes to mind um, most of all, in my mind anyway. But discipline and coordination is key. I asked David Shaw about this, and he said, look, you know, everyone's got to be disciplined, and everyone's also got to have their path coordinate with the teammates as well. You know, use other defenders if you can. If DTR tries to cut back, then he's cutting back into a, into a red wall or a white wall in this instance, because Stanford's going to be wearing their, their road uniforms. And, you know, if you have to, use the sideline as an extra defender as well. So those are the things that are going to have to go into bottling up Felton and bottling up DTR. That's not going to be easy, and that's going to be a tall task against this Stanford defense, which has, has done some good things this year, but maybe has yet to put forth a complete and total team defensive effort for 60 minutes. Tall task for them to do it against the Bruins. We'll see what happens. Meanwhile, offensively for Stanford, the big question for me is whether the card can neutralize uh, UCLA's blitzing and their activity. Now, screen passes are a great way to do that. But Stanford has had mixed success in, in that department. And we talked about this a little bit on Sunday's TreeCast. Stanford's most effective screens this year, anyway, seem to have been run to the tight end, Tucker Fisk, instead of to the wide receivers and the running backs. I mean, Stanford's had one or two successful screens to running backs this year, but nowhere near probably as many as they maybe should have, especially considering that they've had Connor Weddington for about half the season. I asked Shaw what components go into an effective screen game and where Stanford stacks up. Here was his very detailed answer. Honestly, the best screen teams, they do it a lot. Um, they do it five, six times a game. So the two that don't work kind of get hidden in the numbers because the three to five that do work look great. Um, we're not going to do it five, six times a game. So when you do it a little bit less often, then you're really going to be hit and miss. So, um, you know, we had a receiver, sc receiver screen go for minus one. Um, we had a screen go for 10 or 11, a running back screen. 
Um, we had a tight end screen, score a touchdown. Um, so for us, those are going to be always hit or miss. So all we do is work on the skills, work on the techniques. I do know they always get better as your offensive linemen grow and get experience. Um, there's so many things that happen because, you know, a defensive lineman that doesn't rush. Okay, great. I now I have to latch onto this guy. I can't let him go. Um, a defense lineman that rushes and retraces. I have to feel that and peel back on him. A linebacker that's playing man that hugs up on the running back. That's an offensive lineman. I got to be more aggressive and go get that guy. Um, but then all the combination of zone drops, you know, guys dropping this guy, guys dropping that way. And two offensive linemen, sometimes the center gets out first, sometimes the guard gets out first. And those guys work on those things out. So I know I'm explaining way too much, but that's the whole thing when you are maybe throwing between one and three screens a game and throwing a lot more. Um, now it's really rolling the dice. You know, we're going to call it. We either get the great look or we don't get the great look. Um, we've had a couple be really nice. We've had a couple not be so great. Um, but that's just kind of what happens. What we continue to do is work on all those skills. Um, but I think as time goes, I think we'll get better and better at those. There it is. More than perhaps you ever wanted to know about what it takes to run an effective screen pass. And, and, and I didn't really realize this, quite honestly. A lot of this is on the offensive linemen and all the variables that they have to take into account is they try to feed off what the defense is doing, try to sucker them in as much as they can to the quarterback so the QB can, can off the pass over the defenders and get it to the running back or the tight end or the wide receiver in open space, you know, it, it, behind everyone. So there's a lot more on the offensive lineman than, quite honestly, I thought. I always learn something new about football whenever I hear and talk to David Shaw. And look, he's right. Some teams look great at running screens because they do it all the time. Remember those Oregon teams in the 1990s? My God, that was the best screen game I've ever seen. Kristen McLemore still gives me nightmares to this very day, by the way. I'm always a big fan of using a defense's biggest strength and turning it into a weakness. If a defense is very quick to pursue, then you use misdirection. If a defense is big and strong, they also might not be very quick. Use their biggest strength and turn it into a weakness. Now, given what UCLA seems to be able to do best with their attacking styles and, and with their activity before the snap and all those sorts of things, I'm not expecting Stanford to start running screens all the time on Saturday, but I'm sure we'll see a couple. And when we do, if Stanford is able to execute those screens, it'll be vital. It'll certainly be vital. Oh, and of course, yes, the over the uh, evergreen keys that I always have for Stanford. Get six points instead of three, especially early and especially on the road, and get off the field on third down defensively. And to that, I'll add this. Finish up strong, man. Finish up strong. This is it. No bowl. You know, this is it. This is it. Nothing to lose. Leave it all on the field. It's been a long, hard road. And, and we'll see how much gas Stanford has left in the tank after everything it's been going through since December 1st and being on the road for the entirety of the month of December to this point. And yeah, they're kind of treating this week like a bowl week in a sense. They're in Santa Barbara. They're hanging out there. They're working out on the beach. Practice at Santa Barbara City College. Uh, very scenic. I've seen all the pictures on Twitter. Looks like a pretty cool place to be. I'm more of a Pismo Beach man myself. But hey, Santa Barbara's pretty cool. I like it. It's not bad. But no tomorrow. No tomorrow. Finish up strong. Leave it all on the field. Those are my keys to Stanford UCLA, at least from the Cardinal perspective. As always, I welcome your keys, your thoughts, and anything else that you've got on your mind with Stanford football and Stanford athletics in its entirety. Best way to do that is to hit me up on Twitter, at Troy Clarity, at Troy Clarity, last name is spelled C-L-A-R-D-Y. And of course, if you want to share your thoughts via Twitter, give me the hashtag TreeCast. Hashtag TreeCast. That's the best way to ensure that uh, I see your thoughts. And if you haven't already, uh, subscribe, rate, and review the show. I always appreciate those of you who do. Uh, subscribe via Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, uh, whichever way you want to go. We've got you covered right here on the TreeCast. And there may not be a tomorrow for Stanford football after Saturday, at least for the 2020 season anyway. 
but there will be a tomorrow for the tree cast as we'll come your way on Sunday and uh, break down break down some things that we saw against UCLA. I'm not sure exactly how much of a breakdown we're going to do on the game itself, but we're probably going to focus more on big picture type things. I might give out some awards, look back at the season, and try to look ahead to, to the future a little bit. So we'll do those things coming up on the next episode of the TreeCast, which should come your way on Sunday. Until then, thanks for checking us out. Thanks to our guests, Ted Robinson and RJ Abadia. And the biggest thanks of all goes out to you for being a part of the show. Don't drink and drive if you do. You're the dumbest person on the planet, just as dumb as the person who does not wear a mask in this day and age. Wear a mask. Vaccines are out, and that's great, and that's cool, but we are nowhere near out of the woods just yet. Wear a mask. It's that simple. Mask it or casket. And we'll talk to you on Sunday. Thank you for joining us on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network.